Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome former FDA Commissioner Dr. Margaret Hamburg on the new health affairs report she co-authored on how to rein in America's exorbitant healthcare costs. Our charge was to recommend ways that the United States can take a deliberate approach to moderating healthcare spending growth while maximizing value. We were asked to look at things where there were actionable steps that could be taken, where there was real money to be uh, achieved in terms of saving. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Each American now spends an average of nearly $13,000 a year on health care. We have one of the highest health care costs in the world, but we don't lead on the best outcomes. How can we get more value from the $4 trillion we spend on health care? It's a cost that's nearly going to double by the end of this decade. Dr. Margaret Hamburg is part of an effort trying to find the answers to that question. She previously led the Food and Drug Administration during a time of rapid change and has had a very distinguished career. Right now, she's the co-president of the Inter-Academy Partnership. It's a nonprofit made up of science academies from around the world. Well, Dr. Hamburg, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here with you on an important set of topics. Oh, that's great. You know, you and former Senator uh, Majority Leader Bill Frist, co-chair of the Council on Healthcare Spending and Value. And we'll go through some of the key recommendations of what you call a roadmap to value. But I was surprised that you didn't, or, or you chose not to delve into the social determinants of health. Uh, from our organization and many organizations like us, we're very concerned about the 80 million Americans who are on Medicaid and the millions who are uninsured. Uh, tell us a little more about why you chose not to delve into this particular area? Well, let me back up a bit and just say what we were. Um, this was a council that was put together by Health Affairs, really building on their strong and distinguished history of engagement on issues around our healthcare system and issues that pertain to how we deliver care, quality of care, systems of care. And a diverse group of council members came together. I was asked with um, Senator Frist to co-chair. At the time I was asked, I actually said, I'm not sure I'm the right person to do this because I'm not an expert on healthcare spending or healthcare economics. My perspective really comes you know, much more deeply from being a public health professional, including not just at the FDA, but also health commissioner in New York City for six years where I was deeply exposed uh, to issues of healthcare and delivery, but also social determinants of health. Our charge was to recommend ways that the United States can take a deliberate approach to moderating healthcare spending growth while maximizing value. And we we're really asked to try to look at what were some critical domains of activity and what were the levers to make a difference. We were asked to look at things where we felt uh, that there were actionable steps that could be taken, where there was real money in the overall system to be uh, achieved in terms of, of savings. But we also had to address the critical question of what's, how do you assess the right amount of spending? There's no you know, critical dollar amount, percentage of GDP that, that everyone you know, can agree on is, is the, the right target. But I think what we all could agree on from day one was that we were spending an awful lot of money on, on healthcare and not getting what we wanted in terms of, of value, what our country needs. And especially when you look at other countries who are spending 
less in terms of overall percentage of GDP, our health statistics, our vital statistics are just, you know, shockingly poor. So that was sort of the foundation. And you don't think the social safety net that exists in those countries, which may also speak to the social determinants of health are a factor? So, you know, so that was our charge. And and the the group really there, the expertise of the membership and the, the focus of our work wasn't so much in the domains of social determinants of health. Yeah. We made a conscious decision, which, you know, to be honest, disappointed me because I was pushing on that as a very important arena. And I think it's going to be, we didn't want this to be a, a report that tried to be everything to everybody. And so really, you know, building on the expertise, experience and, and focus of of the council members in areas where we felt there was value added. We didn't look at some areas that I think are vitally important and that our nation and all of our our health and medical care experts need to continue to work on include social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing that Mm -hmm. as an increasingly important area of activity and where there are ways to bring um, both our public health system and other social services and community-based activities much closer to the healthcare delivery system in terms of how we how we integrate services and how we pay for services. And in fact, CMS is involved in some very important innovation in that domain right now that I think holds huge promise going forward. Um, but that wasn't the focus of this report. We were really sort of working at where is there a, a fully established database also on which to make our our recommendations. And I think we still need to build out some of the critical uh, research and understanding Mm -hmm. about the critical drivers in terms of social determinants of health. But we also didn't look at at low value care. And I think that's critically important. How much money are we wasting on services that really aren't of value to to patients and consumers in terms of, of promoting and advancing health and actually may be harmful? Um, but we felt that there were other entities working on that. And another area that surprised many people, especially with my involvement as a co-chair, was we didn't look at pharmaceutical spending. And of course, we know that's very much on the minds of the public and policymakers. We know there's important innovations going on. When we look at the future opportunities to make a difference in terms of harnessing science and technology uh, for new products to treat cure and prevent disease, there's going to be lots more on the horizon in terms of of products and strategies, but that many of those are going to be very costly. And as a nation, we need to figure out how to actually pay for these products that can be so meaningful for health. That is a lot that you've just shared with us and couldn't agree with you more about the need to build the uh, evidence base uh, and the data on impact, social determinants on health. But uh, maybe want to pick up a little bit where you uh, gave us a little entree to around the pharmaceuticals and talk about price regulation, targets on spending growth in general, and, and where you think the pulse of the country is next week, although I find it almost impossible to believe it's the 13th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act becoming the law of the land. Um, But at the time, if you remember the town halls and the media opponents tried to falsely label any attempt uh, at price regulation uh, in that law regarding healthcare as the death panels. Do you think that that has substantively changed over these years? Um, Do you think there's more public support for price regulation, even though 
certainly big improvements that came with the Affordable Care Act, they've continued to see a very big chunk of their dollars go to healthcare. Pharmaceutical spending is one area where people feel it in their pockets. People do have a better sense of the cost of drugs than often they have of the cost of other components of healthcare. Um, and I think people also, when, when you or a loved one needs access to a, a potentially life-saving drug or a drug that enables you to go from having a, a chronic debilitating illness to being you know, functional, people want access to it. And I think that you know, as we've seen the rise in, in the cost of, of drugs and also as we've looked at comparisons to other countries, you know, people are concerned. And I think that this is uh, an area where uh, there is more bipartisan interest in addressing the problem of pharmaceutical spending and more outrage, frankly, at, at some of the, the prices that people are seeing, some of the, the rise in, in cost of drugs that have been in the marketplace mm -hmm. for a long time, and, and some of the concerns about whether an important new treatment will be accessible or whether it will break the bank of a family uh, budget or of our nation in terms of paying for costs. So I think that this is an area while, you know, it has of course been highly charged and very political. And, you know, to me, it's a great sadness that so much of critical set of health and public health issues have become so politicized I think this is an area, you know, where you can get people wanting to think and work together in important ways around an issue that, you know, ultimately is, is very mm -hmm. personal. Many people think it is the, the cornerstone of all issues in terms of our health spending in this country. And I think it doesn't represent that. You know, I think we have many other things we need to work on to help bring down uh, the cost of spending and to also help improve the quality of the health care that we pay for. But I think that pharmaceutical spending is and will remain an important area of focus for the public and policymakers. We're, of course, seeing some new activities get underway, yes. mm -hmm. um, and it will be a very interesting and important time. Certainly the news on insulin uh, and making insulin available uh, at, at a uh, more of a fixed price was very welcome news, I think, to right. the American public. That and also, it. you know, being able to really negotiate price um, mm -hmm. within the, the government uh, agency, CMS. Mm -hmm. Very important. You know, the, your, your report calls for supporting healthcare competition and certainly no complaints from us on that front. And in fact, antitrust regulators have recently blocked, I think, four hospital mergers, but the government appears helpless to stop the, the big ones. If we're all in agreement on this, what set of laws will need to be enacted uh, to align with that philosophy? And, and, and do you think it's possible in this environment? Uh, I wonder if there's uh, much support for this. Well, I think, you know, the issue of, of competition is a complicated one. Again, it's, it's, it's not the answer, and we looked at a lot of, of data and talked to a lot of people, and I think you know that there are times when supporting and enhancing competition can be very helpful, both in terms of bringing down costs and improving quality and accountability. I think you know there there also are important settings where you know enhancing competition isn't really a, a reality, you mm -hmm. know, in in rural areas, et cetera. 
Um, but I think, you know, what what we really tried to focus on was the need to increase state and federal monitoring of competitiveness to help um, encourage uh, greater competition as, as appropriate and, and meaningful to identify models that demonstrate value. Well, I think one of the uh, places that people are really concerned about value for their healthcare dollars is certainly in the workforce, right? In the healthcare workforce, which is under uh, so much stress. And, and I'd hazard a guess that uh, the person in the street if you ask them where the money is going in addition to pharmaceuticals and uh, diagnostic machines, they, they might say it's going to the top and it's going to compensation. And we noted the uh, North Carolina treasurer just released a report uh, that found that CEOs across the state's nine largest hospital systems doubled their paychecks uh, in less than five years. Did your, your panel take a look at this? How big a problem is executive compensation uh, in the healthcare system, especially during this time when we're seeing such dire shortages of uh, some of the rank and file healthcare workers? Well, the overall issues of, of healthcare workforce are enormously important and really in a critical inflection point, I think, because um, uh, the last years of COVID have, have mm -hmm. placed such a toll on healthcare workers, have stretched um, healthcare workers very, very um, thin. And um, you know we are seeing many understaffed healthcare uh, systems, and we need to put very targeted uh, attention to how do we um, both strengthen and, and enhance our workforce, and how do we also uh, ensure the right mix of types of healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. As for CEOs, you know I think the the issue of CEO salary wasn't you know a, a major focus of discussion during our, our council process, but it speaks to bigger issues that there's there there are pockets of really big money in, in our healthcare system. We also don't have as much transparency as many would like into where the money is and how the money flows uh, within the healthcare uh, system. And you know we we do think that it's important to um, bring more sunshine to all the different components of our healthcare system and where the money is and how it's being spent and is it being allocated in the right ways with the right equities. You know, one question that we also got asked um, when you think about healthcare systems and you think about, you know, really making a difference for people, should we be recommending, you know, a national health system um, and universal health care uh, through that kind of a mechanism? And you can certainly see, um, you know, the benefits of that in other countries. But we also, you know, felt we needed to work within the realities of our system, which is a, a much more multifaceted mm -hmm. approach to healthcare delivery and many different kinds of systems, many different kinds of, of payers, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it does make it harder to really have both the transparency and the accountability in terms of uh, where the money is, how it's being spent, and assessing the value sometimes of, mm -hmm. of those investments yeah. in our health system. Well, you know, I think I one of the was... uh, areas where some sunlight has uh, been shining that is uh, was overdue uh, perhaps was the whole issue of maternity deserts 
across the United States. And as that becomes front page news in the United States, and we realize just how much of the country lives in a maternity desert, these issues, whether we look at other uh, systems that are more universal or nationalized, or we look at more accountability for where the investment of dollars go, I can't help but think that that issue is going to galvanize some action as well. So thank you for your comments. Yeah, well, and we do keep seeing the rise in maternal mortality in this country, which yeah, is, right. is really quite uh, shocking. Um, you know, the, the overall numbers, but but also it is one of the areas that really show the inequities, um, exactly. the disparities in health and the, the African-American maternal mortality is, is just so out of proportion. Um, and I think we all probably can agree that we can and must do better in terms of this important and very fundamental area of healthcare. I was thinking uh, as you were uh, answering before uh, about making a difference in the value for people on a was thinking about navigating the healthcare system as sort of both an art and a science, and and it's overwhelming, right, to most uh, patients. I'm wondering what what can the average person do to ensure they're getting value for the money they spend. Uh, and we note uh, the report recommends value-based payment models that uh, patients should lock into a specific delivery system uh, that's accountable for their care. But maybe translate that for the average citizen. Well, I think value-based care is is an evolving area, and we need to really better define it and um, better implement it. Right now, in many instances, there's more jargon than reality. I think you know, sad to say, um, but that's one of the reasons we felt it was important to put a focus on it. You know, in terms of taking it, you know, to the sort of individual consumer perspective, I do think it's really, really important to sort of have a medical home to, you know, as best you can in our complex world to find a, a healthcare system and a, and a set of providers that you get to know and trust and they get to know you, um, where you feel comfortable asking questions. Uh, I think we live in a world where there's just, you know, such a swirl of information available, but it's hard to always be able to discern what's reliable information and what's misinformation, either well-intentioned and inadvertent or increasingly, sadly, deliberate disinformation in certain arenas of, of health and healthcare. I also think you know, that we have an obligation as healthcare professionals to do a better job educating patients and the public mm -hmm. about issues of, of health and wellness and disease and helping patients and, and individuals be better consumers of healthcare, which means asking more questions and holding health systems more accountable. But it's, it's, it's a journey. Um, and I think certainly healthcare delivery institutions have to hold themselves to higher standards in terms of not just delivering services because you can, but delivering services because they're the right ones for the patient at the right time that will make a difference and you can demonstrate why they're needed and the benefits that have occurred because of them. Well, I really uh, appreciate Dr. Hamburg, your, your lead in there to your comments about how important it is for people to have a relationship with somebody uh, with a primary care provider in order to be able to both get the healthcare they need and make sense of the whole system. And I'm uh, reminded of the NASM report that came out a little over a year ago uh, towards implementing high quality primary care that uh, emphasizes one of its first elements, the importance of everybody having a relationship 
with a primary care provider, but they also went on to say, it's not just about a provider, it's about a team, it's about team-based care, the integration of uh, behavioral health, uh, the maximum use of everybody on the team. And of course, as part of that, you can't go too far before you look at things like GME and how do we train that healthcare workforce? Who do we train uh, to be on that team? And I, I don't know that that was a consideration uh, within the panel um, or within any of your area of interest, but what, what are your thoughts about how we train this next generation to be the generation that delivers on that model of primary care? Well, you know, again, it, it wasn't a central focus of discussions in our, um, in our work, but it certainly did come up in, in the broader context of, of workforce and also, you know, how do you incentivize the right kinds of care with the emphasis on value and quality and accountability. I, I am very far away from the, the day-to-day world of healthcare delivery. I have to say I'm trained in medicine and I, I practiced medicine, but went into public service um, and you know, moved farther away from the actual you know, hands-on with patients. But I, I must say, I'm so struck by how much harder it must be to be a healthcare provider in the modern era with so much information, so many demands and expectations, and you know the the increasing constrictions on the time that you have to spend with with patients. Right. And so, you know, as you know, the the idea of the team becomes more important. The idea of training people, not just so that they know everything, you know, I mean, I spent so much time memorizing and re-memorizing sets of facts (laughs) as a medical student and then in my early days of medical care. Now, what's important is to be able to know how to access information and how to um, be able to uh, tap into the right networks of of care. I think one of the things that that is also important about the way that training and is going on these days and the way that I think the medical profession is reshaping itself goes back to the discussion that we began with about social determinants of yeah. health. I think that medical providers that work in clinical and hospital settings are increasingly aware of the the fact that not everything that's important, in fact, a lot of what's important for health doesn't happen within clinic walls or hospital walls. Um, But this notion of also engaging with patients on a broader set of issues that have to do with, you know, health-related behaviors and lifestyle considerations, also potential community exposures, and and also the importance of, of recognizing that, you know, it isn't just what you recommend to your patient, it's also what they're able to actually do. And it doesn't matter if you make a brilliant diagnosis and you write the prescription, if they can't afford the drug, they don't understand how to take it, yeah. um, or they're lost to follow up, all of your great training and expertise and medical acumen hasn't really served that patient. So mm-hmm. I think we need to continue to work on that sort of more integrated yeah. approach to medicine and medical care. Well, let me, let me try to get one last question, and, and I want to turn uh, our attention to the agency that used to head the FDA. The agency uh, obviously has faced many challenges during COVID. Uh, we had Dr. Walensky on from the CDC, and uh, just as she was launching sort of a reorganization uh, of the CDC, I'm wondering what your thoughts about what the agency has done uh, right and wrong. And I also want to note that you and a number of other bipartisan FDA commissioners had written a letter during the 
Trump administration about meddling politically into the whole process. I wonder if you can sort of put that together for us in terms of one, does the agency need to sort of recast itself in light of the sort of the public uh, uh, struggles that it faced and also sort of this political intervention uh, that, that's yeah. happened in terms of to the vaccine approval process? Well, you know, this is a really complicated issue and one that's very close to my heart. I would say that the importance of enabling the FDA to, to work as it's been charged to in law and in practice over you know, more than a century now, which is to, to be a science-based, data-driven uh, regulatory agency that, that reviews data and evidence in order to inform and then make critical decisions about safety, mm -hmm. efficacy, quality, and performance of products. Also, of course, it's important oversight of, of food and nutrition and now tobacco. But to be able to do that, you know, in a science-based way, mm -hmm. protected from the intrusion of, of politics or ideology or other commercial or vested interests, um, this is not a problem that emerged in the complex cauldron of, of COVID challenges. This is a problem that, that has dated back a very long time. And frankly, I think with you know, every administration um, in, in the modern FDA experience, we've seen more and more political intrusion and efforts along those lines with the FDA. And, um, and so that's why, you know, I think it really preceded uh, the Trump administration that the FDA commissioners came together to make this call um, against political and other mm -hmm. um, intrusion into our decision-making. COVID brought so many things into sharp focus. And this was certainly one of them for the FDA. Also, it, it brought into focus, you know, the fact that we as a society over many years, but intensified during COVID, have seen a devaluation, a denigration almost of scientific evidence and scientific expertise and perhaps expertise um, more broadly. And that's been very damaging as well. And so agencies like the FDA are in a very, very difficult position right now. Uh, trust has been undermined partly for reasons of failures of, of adequate communication um, and clarity about you know, what they're doing and why, um, partly because of politics and ideology and divisiveness that has, has targeted and undermined trust in institutions like mm -hmm. uh, the FDA, um, and partly because of longer historical trends um, about tensions around regulatory authorities and and public health, but but you know FDA is a unique and essential agency. It's vital to all of us every day um, in countless ways that matter, and FDA has to do its work with a foundation of trust, public trust, and and we have to earn that trust and prove ourselves trustworthy every single day. And I think that that is, you know, something that uh, the commissioner and the employees at FDA understand and, and are working hard and have a huge set of responsibilities, but are driven by a, a vital mission 
to promote and protect the health of all Americans. Well, Dr. Hamburg, uh, we really appreciate you joining us. I appreciate uh, all of your comments and, and especially that uh, closing comment. Uh, many thanks for that. And many thanks to our audience for joining us. Uh, there's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates. Our address is chcradio.com. Dr. Hamburg, thank you so much uh, for all of the work you've done in your career and more to come. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Pleasure we really appreciated your time. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.